All right. Well, good afternoon. I always have to remind myself. Afternoon when we meet. Just, just barely afternoon. Uh, good to have you here. If you're joining us virtually, it's good to have you here as well. Uh, we'll go ahead and get get started. Uh, does everybody need Bibles? Actually, we're going to give you a nice Great. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke today. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer though before we begin. Grateful God as always for your presence here and for this opportunity to dig into your word. As we look at the Gospel of Luke specifically today, um, we ask that you guide us, be with us, and help us to see things we have not seen before, and see again things that we need to see again. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Alright, so, we have talked about uh, the Gospel of Mark, we talked about the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about the third synoptic Gospel, uh, which is the Gospel of Luke. And as always, um, it's given a little bit of background to the audience that the writer was writing to. Um, one of the things that is uh, a bit of um, uh, news to a lot of folks is that Luke and Acts are actually part one and part two of one book um, with the same author. And when they were putting the canon together, they, for whatever reason, decided to stick John in the middle, so it kind of breaks it up. But it's the same author writing to the same audience. Um, and if you actually finish Luke and flip to Acts and pick it up from there, you see the seamlessness of it. Really um, Luke was written AD 85 CE. So for context, that's 50 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Matthew was written a few years before this, and Mark was written about 10 or 15 years before this. It's written by Luke, who was a physician. So he's an educated man, and he's writing to a Gentile audience, so a non-Jewish audience. So this is in contrast to Matthew, that if you remember, was written specifically to a Jewish audience. Luke is written to not that. Um, and uh, Luke is written from an educated position, a physician. Uh, the Greek is some of the most sophisticated in, in the New Testament. So when, whenever in seminary, whenever we had to uh, exegete a passage in Greek from Luke, there was a lot of high rolling and moaning because it was, not, uh, it was not always the easiest uh, Greek reading to do as, as compared to some other parts of the New Testament. And we've talked again about the Synoptic Gospels that Matthew, uh, like Matthew, Luke uses Mark as a primary resource, so there's a lot of commonalities between the two. And you also have this nebulous uh, cue, which is sayings of Jesus, and there's not really a book of it, although somebody compiled a book of it, and I, I bought it at a bookstore in Asheville a few weeks ago, and I still cannot find where I put it. So maybe one day I'll find it and I'll bring it to the class. It would have been great to have had right here. It's basically saying Jesus and Mark made. Um, Luke is writing to people of power in the world at this time. Not necessarily political power, but more cultural influence. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, he's a physician. This is, these are the circles that he walks in. And he is writing to them about, and the Jesus that he is lifting up to them is a Jesus uh, who is concerned for the poor, the socially outcast, and the women. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, about Luke. The women have a star role in Luke, and the writer of Luke uh, is very particular about him wanting to lift up uh, women. Um, so Jesus is essentially writing to the culturally more or less elite of the day, and trying to say to them that this Jesus who we have the opportunity to follow is, is pushing us to care for people not like us. More or less. 
Um, and interestingly enough, as he's writing to this particular audience, he comes down kind of hard on people of wealth and people who have position and prestige and privilege and power. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you would that Jesus he would write the Jesus to be this to the people that are reading him. But but that's what the gospel of Luke does. Um, we find that the idea of fellowship is super important in Luke. There's a lot of gathering around the table, around the meal, but for a meal in Luke. We'll get to some of those examples in a bit. We mentioned before that with the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are clueless. Here, the disciples know exactly what Jesus is up to in all the world. So it's just kind of interesting that there's this sort of difference. But the, the, the disciples know and see what Jesus is doing. And whereas Mark really emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and, and particularly the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's just in agony, Luke's is more of the divinity of Jesus, and we'll talk about why that it is not so it is not divinity that is so almost out of touch with humanity like we find in John. The Jesus in John is super out there. Um, but 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 Luke really wants to lift up the divinity of Jesus. And we'll get to why again. Okay? So general structure of Luke, we just, you know, sort of always want to get a feel for how the book is laid out. It is not unlike uh, its counterpart Matthew as far as uh, sort of the movement of Jesus and the disciples from Galilee eventually to Jerusalem and then the resurrection. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, this is just sort of a general way of looking at how the book might be laid out. So we're going to watch a video today. Uh, let me, uh, this should work. Uh, yeah. oh, where'd you go? Where'd there a minute ago? Well, maybe we're not watching it. It's not on the show. Okay, I'll tell you what. The link is on the PowerPoint. You got it right there, so when you want to watch it at home, you can you can do that. Sorry about that. It happened to me. What's that now? The same thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just to get a little 10 minute kind of a summary thing, so it's kind of neat. All right, so let's move, we're going to move along. Let's talk about some of the basic themes of the gospel. What is it that Luke is really thinking on? As it's telling the story and the narrative of Jesus, what is the writer wanting to lift up sort of in, in general? Um, one of those things is Jesus' affinity for the oppressed. So the gospel of Luke is, the, is for people who are seeking social justice, civil rights, uh, those kinds of things, they tend to gravitate, if, to, as far as the gospel, they tend to gravitate towards Luke. Uh, closely linked with Jesus' concern for women is his affinity for powerless and for the vulnerable of society. Um, so this is, what, this is what Jesus came for, again, to sort of even the scales. Uh, this Luke is a gospel where we get a lot of the Jesus that is welcoming all the people that are excluded elsewhere. So tax collectors, prostitutes, outcasts, and that kind of stuff, and dines with them. And again, that is significant in this 
time of the world, and even today, who you gather around the table with for a meal, who you share a meal with, says a lot about where your priorities are and what statement you're trying to make. And, 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 and the outcasts were the one that Jesus intentionally sought out to gather around the table with in the Gospel of Luke. Um, dines frequently with them. Uh, probably not surprisingly, this led Jesus to being accused. You know, it's kind of, what's the, what's the expression, the people you hang out with, or, I forget, you know what you know I'm talking about? It sounds like something my mother would have told me. Like, the people that you hang out with, or choose your friends wisely, or guilty by association kind of a thing, right? I tell my 17-year-old this all the time. So, uh, it's not surprising that Jesus would be accused of the kinds of things that the people he hung out with were accused of. So, we get that, that a lot, and I think a lot of people know that sort of that vibe, and a lot of it comes from the Gospel of Luke specifically. Another thing that we find in, 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 in Luke is the real emphasis on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't, and, and, and again, we get the debut of the Spirit in part two, in Acts, right? Acts two, the Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But even in the Gospel of Luke, there are uh, references uh, made about the Holy Spirit, which this is the you know this is the the topic of the Holy Spirit is the one that confirmation that the confirmation of mentors always struggle with the most because it's like how do you get your hands around that? For our purposes, quite simply, the Holy Spirit is God's active Spirit in the world. And um, as as Jesus engages his ministry, there is this sort of buildup of of what we would later learn to be the Holy Spirit. Um, There's a passage, or is that from John? I know it's John about the in my rooms and one of the places I'm going to send the advocate to the Holy Spirit to you. That's in the Gospel of John, never mind. But there's there's this there's this beginning and sort of setting the stage and the, and the telling of a narrative is really setting the stage and of course when we get to Acts the Holy Spirit actually becomes a thing descends upon the gathering uh, now that Jesus is no longer with them it gives the ability literally to speak languages in other parts of the world and we'll talk more about that when we get to Acts in a couple of weeks but it is very important to note and the scripture points this out in Acts that the people were speaking actual languages, not the incoherent babbling that we think of in speaking in tongues. So Acts 2 is not a speaking in tongues passage. It's a speaking language that's being powerful. So that's the Holy Spirit, and then we get sort of the prominence of women. Women are very prominent and present and influential in the telling of Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke. They'll play an important role in fulfilling the plan, the God's plan. Um, we had the angel appearing to Mary, mother of Jesus. All right? So the news goes to a young woman uh, about Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene and Mary's sister of Martha, who are disciples. This kind of surprises people. They're like, well, wait, no, there are only 12 disciples and they're all men. Well, that's not entirely true. That's what we have over thousands of years kind of constructed in our head. But there were women disciples who were just as engaged, honestly, more so, particularly on the day of the resurrection. They're the ones that showed up at the tomb first. The men were all hiding out because they were terrified. The women were the brave ones. Uh, And then the women followed him to Jerusalem with him. So when you read Luke more than the other three Gospels, you will see the presence of women lifted up and put on the pedestal. Um, the other thing that's interesting in Luke is we use this as Savior. Now, this is different than the term Messiah. We tend to equate the two and sort of use those terms interchangeably in our head. And I would say in a general functional sense, they are, they, they are probably fairly compatible, but the big difference is Messiah is a Jewish construct. Messiah is what um, the, the, the people throughout the Hebrew history have been told that God was going to send to deliver them and that kind of stuff. Savior is a Greek term. So this is more of the immediate culture that they're in. Um, used throughout the Greco-Roman world and 
you know, it, it is honestly a, a direct um, uh, challenge to the authority of the emperor because the emperor was the savior. So what we find in Luke is really interesting is that the writer of Luke's exposition writing to this community of Gentiles actually borrows the lingo for the supreme leader of the culture and co-opts it to use to describe this Jesus. Today, again, we don't sense that, but that was actually pretty profound. It would be like us today going, calling Jesus president, more or less, right? Uh, and, and even probably something more than that, but I'm not going to that. But the point is, is that when we talk about Savior, we are not using a Hebrew concept or construct. We are borrowing something from the Greco-Roman construct that was co-opted at the time. Now we use it. Um, it's a little further than sort of the idea of Son of God. Again, this is sort of Luke's special flavor when it comes to the larger identity, the divinity of Jesus. Because Savior was a term for divinity when it referred to the emperor. Of course, they believed that the emperor was sent by God. Now it's being used. Okay. Alright, so um, we get the infancy narrative that we have in Luke, and I have a little um, we're going to do an exercise. Um, open your Bibles to Luke I think it is. Take a look at that. Those who are joining us online, I'm pulling out the nativity scene. I'm going to try something here. Uh, Take a look at chapter 2, verses like 1 through... uh, Let's do 1 through 20. Alright? Alright, so... I'm going to read chapter chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration. It was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth from Galilee to Judea, the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and expecting a child while they were there. The time came for her to deliver her child. So convenient, yes. Um, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped in the base of cloth, and laid in the manger. So, let's see here. We've got um, we got Mary, right? Let's see. We've got. I'm I'm going to say I'm going to say that's Joseph, and then we've got baby Jesus, right? And we're going to put them in this manger. Although there is some there is some question historically about was it a building kind of thing, barn, whatever that we tend to have in our heads. Some people think it may be more like a cave. Alright. But for, for this is what the, our nativity has here. So tell me what else we find in our nativity scene as Luke tells it. Uh, what do we find in verse eight? Shepherds. Shepherds. Alright. So, shepherds. we got one shepherd here. There's probably more that came. But the angel appeared to the shepherds and told them that Jesus was born. And so they came. They found, uh, look, at, uh, look at 16. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds, or in our case, shepherd, told them. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart. So the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus. And then 22, uh, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And it goes on to talk about Simeon and all this other kinds of stuff. Um, so, what's missing from our major scene? The wise Wise guys. Exactly. Where do we find the wise men? Matthew. Matthew. They're not here, right? Um, and I don't know why there's this. Oh, I guess maybe that's another shepherd. He's holding lamb. Maybe it's like a shepherd in training. Yeah. And then we have a camel. Uh, it doesn't say anything about a camel, but that's the wise man. Oh, that is a wise man. You're right. I'm sorry. Okay, 
So that goes, that's not here. All right. So I, I like to sort of do this to point out the fact that when we set up our nativity scenes, what we are really setting up is kind of a mishmash of two Gospels. And there's nothing wrong with that, but um, we tend to have in our heads this image of everybody, like some big, huge family reunion, kind of gathering together, when in fact, um, what we're really talking about is the meshing together of two birth narratives. So, um, I always like to sort of split it up like this. This is kind of neat. And broadening it beyond just the manger scene. So in Luke, we get the story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And of course, this is uh, John the Baptist's uh, father. I think they're a cousin. Elizabeth is a cousin of Mary, is that it? Um, yeah. Yeah. We get the sort of pre-story announcing the birth of Jesus or that God is doing something special um, just as uh, God has uh, helped Mary be pregnant um, in her young age. Uh, she's helping Elizabeth be pregnant in her old age, and so we get that whole story. We do not have any mention of Zechariah Elizabeth in Matthew. Right? In Luke, the angel visits Mary. And we talked about that already, so the prominence of one. Who does the angel visit in Matthew? Joseph. Right. Right. And again, this isn't to say that there's a discrepancy, so therefore it's not right. It is, look which gospel is highlighting which, or not highlighting which, right? You sort of get a, an idea of what the emphasis that gospel is. In Luke, there's nothing mentioned about Herod, but in Matthew, we get the whole narrative about how Herod got word that God was going to bring the Messiah and into birthing into his domain, and Herod gets panicky, and what does Herod do about that? All the children, yeah, the the all boys, two and under, right? Jesus gets out in the nick of time. But there's no mention of anything about Herod in Luke, and of course, Herod was a historical figure. He was there at the time of Jesus' birth, but Luke just doesn't care to mention that. There, we get this bit about the census being mentioned. Um, we don't get anything about the census in Matthew. Uh, it is interesting to think about why the census was of, of importance enough to get mentioned in here. And it makes me wonder if, again, if the, the Jesus that Luke is lifting up is a Jesus who is, who is, who is going to act on behalf of the outcast as, and, and, and understandably going to be butting up against the powers that be in doing so. It's, it's almost that this is sort of setting the stage for that. It was a government initiative that caused that interestingly enough that caused a tremendous uh, turmoil in the life of Mary and Joseph um, but ended up uh, having the birth and death thing which we know Matthew would highlight as Luke we get the shepherds we get the narrative about the shepherds there are no shepherds mentioned in Matthew on the other side of that there are no wise men in Luke so we have to have both to have our dangerous things. <laughs> well, you know, why did they come to see David Day? Which again, of course, they're coming because of Herod. Yeah, but they're the Herod had said, Herod had said, hey, go check this out for me. They go check it out. Then they get a dream that says, this Herod's a bad dude. You don't want to go back to him. And so they go the opposite direction. Herod um, so, I, I, again, I... There's nothing wrong with having an ancient scene that has everything together all in place. As long as we're cognizant of the fact that that's not the way the Bible tells it that clearly. Um, we do the same thing with the Gospels, honestly. Um, any Jesus movie is almost always a conglomerate of different Gospels. Um, there are some that are done specifically to one Gospel. But like that... The, the really well-known one that was on NBC for years and years, um, where like everybody was fairly dark-skinned, dark eyes except for Jesus, who had fair skin and blue eyes. I don't know why they did that, but it really—I it, always thought it was one other than that. I always thought it was one of the better Jesus movies, but it is very much 
uh, throwing together all four Gospels. So as long as we realize that everybody has their own audience and highlight different things for a reason, that's, that's, that's all. Okay. Um, lumping the the teenage the pre the pre teenage years into the empathy narrative, which is not entirely true. The end of chapter two, uh, we get this uh, this this wonderful story about. Um, Jesus as a 12-year-old. Um, it's the only time in the Gospels we hear anything about Jesus other than a baby or a grown adult. Um, and I, I really like the fact that at least one of them doesn't. Um, but it's just it's this great story where they're at a festival um, and uh, the, the parents um, come to the temple for Passover. Um, they 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 kind of lose him there, and they start heading home. And there's a whole bunch of people are heading home, and they just assume he's off playing with some friend in the group, but he's not. He's back in Jerusalem. So you know, whatever commentary you want to make about the slack parenting of Mary and Joseph, you could do it. But yeah, the point the point is is that when they finally realize he is not in their entourage, and they start freaking out, they come to the temple, and he's there talking with the temple scribes and engaging them. Uh, you know, he's amazing them with his sort of knowledge, which again harkens back to that divinity Jesus emphasizing. Like, he's a boy, he's human, but there's something super special about him that these temple scribes would, like, pick up on him. Um, and, uh, and then we get in that last verse, Jesus increased in wisdom in years. That's kind of a summary thing that then sets the stage for what happens in the rest of the Gospel. So this... Uh, these 11 verses, 41 through 52, are the only snapshot we have of the childhood or pre-teenage or teenage years of Jesus. So, um, I just I find that kind of interesting. Okay? So, moving on into the rest of the Gospel, uh, kind of reinforces the writer's concerns we already talked about. Jesus came to tend to the needs of the poor. His ministry is centered around Jerusalem and the fellowship, the gathering around the table is such a vital part of who Jesus is and what he's there for. Um, Take a look in your Bible, chapter 6. Verses 17 through 49. We're not going to read all these. Chapter 6, verse 17. He came down with them, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with the great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all in the crowd were trying to touch him for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Etc., etc., skip down to 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did. To the false prophets. So, what does this sort of sound like? What other thing have we studied? Sermon on the Mount. Right. What are some of the differences that you know? Beginning the very first thing, where are they? What's the geog? What's the geography? Level place. Right. Right. Matthew has Jesus on the mountain because Matthew wants to har- highlight the similarities between Jesus and who? Moses. Moses. And Moses went on the mountain. Right? So Jesus is on a little place. Um, what are some of the other similarities you have, like in verse 20 and stuff? What are some of the similarities? So there's a similarity in that it's the blessed thing. So that would seem to think that we're getting Luke's take on the thing that Matthew was talking about. Whatever that event was. 
Um, the blessings of similarity, there are fewer. But also, what is, look really closely, particularly that first one. What's the difference that you see? Blessed are the who? Just the poor, not the poor in spirit. Right. And then what do you get in 21? Blessed are you who are hungry. And then blessed are you who weep. So, whereas, I mean, if you were to set Matthew's Beatitudes side by side, you would find that the majority of them are sort of describing people who are experiencing spiritual difficulties, right? The poor in spirit and the other kinds of things. In Luke, well, you have, he, we're talking about the poor. We're talking about the oppressed. We're talking, it's not spiritual problems. It is physical problems. It is societal problems. It is that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's similar but different. Right? Uh, what is another difference you find in 24? The woes, right? We don't find those in Matthew. But again, Jesus, Luke has his Jesus calling out the rich and the wealthy after lifting up the hungry and the poor. So Luke's is shorter, it's simple, it's more direct. Um, Matthew focuses on spiritual blessings. Luke deals with more material matters. And then we have, this is my term, anti attitude or the woes, it could be simply called uh, directed those who ignore these people that Matthew, or excuse me, that Luke talks about. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how this is the way that more or less uh, uh, Luke has Jesus' ministry beginning. It's this direct drawing the line um, between all that. Skipping ahead, um, Maybe some notable healings. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you can read this. It's 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 an interesting story um, because it's kind of two healings woven together. Which healings are you know miracles are important in Mark. Uh, the miracles are important in Luke too, but it's the healings that are important because again, it is Jesus coming to make uh, unhealed people's lives better, black and better, right? But we get this really amazing thing where uh, Jairus is a synagogue leader whose daughter is dying. He comes to Jesus and begs for help, or actually one of his help of one of his servants comes to Jesus and says, you need to come now, he's dying. And Jesus goes. And so we get this, we immediately get this picture of Jesus caring for all people because uh, uh, not just, I mean, this was a very wealthy, privileged person. So this isn't like a down crowd not cast like we talked before. But Jesus, nevertheless, tends to and cares for all people. While he is on his way to go see Jairus' daughter, he is stopped and has this other exchange with him as a woman. This is more along the lines of the kind of people that Luke was talking about. Um, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a woman who was unpure because she was hemorrhaging and, and also a woman, right? Uh, so the, the miracle story actually interrupts this miracle story, we'll get to the conclusion here in a minute of Jairus' daughter. The interesting thing in this uh, is that uh, the woman takes the initiative to get healing from Jesus and touches Jesus' cloak. Jesus immediately, it says, kind of felt power go out of him. Who touched you? And they're in this huge crowd, and the disciples are like, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? you got people all around you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 who touched me? And finally, the woman fessed up. And Jesus says, you know, you're, you're healed. But the woman took the initiative and got healing from Jesus without Jesus totally realizing it until it happened. You know what I mean? I mean that, that, that's very interesting. But it's this woman taking initiative, which is different. So then at the end, uh, you know, he goes and they say, you know, the daughter's already dead. And Jesus says, no, nope, she's only sleeping. And people are really offended by that because who wouldn't be, right? And then Jesus goes in and, and brings it back to life and makes it better. So we get, it's really interesting the way that Luke weaves these together and puts that one in the middle. Because this is, the, the, the point is, Jesus, Luke is trying to make a much larger point beyond just Jesus heals people to look at the spectrum of people. 
right? Um, both rich and poor together, literally, in the same story, is the way that we can kind of tell it. Okay? Luke has two of the most well-known parables in all the Gospels. Um, so well-known that we don't see what's there, I would suggest. Where? Um, Herald of the Good Samaritan, chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. <laughs> um, and the parable, Herald of the Good Samaritan starts because the lawyer is, is, is um, trying to and the, the fact that it's the lawyer is not super important, although in Luke's narrative, a lawyer would have been a what? Privilege. Person of privilege and knowledge. The kind of people that Luke himself is writing to, right? And they have this exchange about, uh, you know, what I do to, to, get, to get into heaven to inherit eternal life. And Jesus reads them, you know, you shall love God with all your heart and your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's what the man says, and Jesus says, you got it. Just do that. And then the man says, but who's my neighbor? And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to turn the tables on the guy and turn the tables on everybody. And we know the story. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now... The one thing that is not said directly here is that any listener of this parable would have immediately seen and known with that intro sentence was that this man that was beaten was a Jew. And the reason is because it says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That would be like me saying a man was walking around south end. You are going to know that that person, that means he's in Charlotte, or from Charlotte, right? Um, a thousand years from now, that would have to be spelled out in the same way that I'm spelling out to you now that this man was a Jew. People who heard this in that context would have known that he was a Jew, and that's important. Reading on. 31, now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, so likewise a Levite, and he came on a place and saw him pass by on the other side. We have two people of, uh, of not just fellow Jews, but people of prominence in the Jewish circles. And religious prominence. Alright? You have a priest, and we know what that is. What was a Levite? Remember back to the Old Testament, the Levite was the tribe that was, was commissioned to the caretaking of the temple or the tabernacle, as it were. So, so a handyman of the sanctuary of the church. So we have two religious leaders, fellow Jews who pass him by. Um, 33, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity, and we know what he did. Um, because we know that the man who was beaten was a Jew, we know that the fact that it was a Samaritan to help the man, um, that was substantial, to say the least. Um, a lot of people think that a Samaritan was a person who helped somebody because we say good Samaritan, right? And that's not true. A Samaritan was an ethnicity. Um, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament when the kingdom split in the northern and southern. Southern kingdom had Jerusalem. That's where the Jews were. The northern kingdom is where the Samaritans would go. Um, Hatfields and Lepore's right? Uh, the Jews looked upon Samaritans as less than. All right? They weren't living in the true, chosen, promised land and they weren't in Jerusalem. So they were kind of less than. Samaritans hated that Jews thought they were so special. So there's a lot of animosity and that sort of thing. He is tell, Jesus is telling the story to a bunch of Jews, is the way that Luke pitches this. So think about what this means. This is not just a story about how you should help people when they're downtrodden and in need. It is deeper than that. Alright? is your neighbor is your the person you don't get along with and the person that you think is less than you who is somebody who might help you when you are totally incapacitated 
How does that make you feel? That's essentially what this parable is doing, right? It is pushing the people to think big. So, duck the man, we assume be a Jew. Those who pass him by are ones who will soon stop to help him. Samaritan from Samaria, for the northern kingdom, for, former northern kingdom that broke off from the southern kingdom after the rain. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. So, this made the priest and Levite's actions, of course, inexcusable. And the Samaritan's action was most unexpected. He would be the last person you think of a Jew. According to the parable, is everyone is our neighbor and deserving of our kindness and help, especially those who we think are not deserving of it. But the even deeper thing that I don't get into here in this thing is your neighbor is someone who, who puts you in a, when you are in a position of need, reaches out to help you, and you're not in a position to either accept it or decline it. Right? I mean, he, he takes him to an end, he gives the innkeeper money, wakes up the next day, what happened? Well, the Samaritan saved your life, basically. How does that make you feel? Right? That's the challenge. That's where Jesus takes this seemingly benign question, who's my neighbor? Right? Um, and this fits perfectly into Jesus, into Luke's understanding of Jesus and his mission on earth. And that Luke's Jesus wants his followers to be uncomfortable, <laughs> more or less. Okay? So I think it's important to go deeper because honestly, to say the parable against Samaritan is to say you need to help people when they need it. That doesn't that doesn't challenge us much. I mean that's kind of like, okay, great, great, I've checked that box off. But no, 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 no. Allowing yourself to be helped by your biggest rival or enemy. Um, when I would teach my class, I would, uh, there was, there was, I would, I would ask my students on the essay portion, I would say, rewrite the parable of the Good Samaritan in a modern context, keeping the same theme and ideas. I mean, literally, rewrite the parable. And it was walking on the road, was being up. And identify the people, who the characters in the story in a modern sense. And a lot of them didn't get it. But the ones that got it, I remember one guy wrote, um, Carolina fan, was walking on 15501, beaten up by a bunch of people. Uh, soon after, Roy Williams walked by. That's all. Kept going. Not too long after that, Michael Jordan saw and kept on going. Next thing you know, Mike Shishetsky is walking by. He stops, picks him up, takes him to the nearest hospital, gets him, gives him money and all kinds of stuff. That's and um, there have been times like when I've done like youth retreats and we talked about the parable and I've kind of gone into there. I mean, it is really funny. Um, I've, I've recounted that essay question. And when I say Mike Krzyzewski, there are some people in the room that have a visceral reaction to that. No! No! I mean, like grown adults are like, oh, no. You know, like, oh, right? But that's the whole point. Now, I'm way far, so I'm like, sort of, I'm like, whatever, we can help all people. But, 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 but that's, a, that's an example of kind of what this parable is getting at that we miss when we just say it's about helping people. Um, I like unpacking that. Parables about wealth and poverty. Uh, there's a lovely parable in there about the rich fool, and we're not going to go into this, um, but it's about Abraham, you know, kind of going down and meeting Abraham and, and, and uh, somebody being tortured because they did not uh, live right in life, and there's five brothers, and it's like, please tell my five brothers about, you know, what I'm doing here, uh, the, uh, the suffering we're going through here, because I did not use my wealth wisely by having all these possessions, and so, uh, so that's, again, an indictment on the wealthy, which is the audience Luke is writing to, which is just kind of crazy thing. We get this lovely, beautiful section in Luke 14 about the parable of the perfect banquet, where Jesus talks about, we have a meal, who you invite, Who's the guest list? You invite all the people that you think you want to come and all the higher-ups, and then they all give lame excuses. I mean, it's like three different 
parables within this section. But one of them is, when you invite these people and they don't come because they have these lame excuses, like, i got to wash my car or i got to do whatever, then Jesus is like, go invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the kind of people that wouldn't normally get invitations. So we get the whole thing turning on the table. And the interesting thing is, is that the way we're talking, it's actually at the dinner table with a bunch of Pharisees. And um, somebody comes in seeking healing from Jesus, and, and it kind of upends the whole scene, and then Jesus sort of goes into this thing. So Luke's Jesus has no qualms telling it like it is. We found that earlier with the Sermon on the Plain. So we get that right in the lion's den, for lack of a better word. We get the two looking themes of Jesus' associated with, with outcasts and fellowship around the table. In there. Okay? Uh, let's see. We've already been there. Yeah, I want to get to the parable of the prodigal son. Um, this is another one that we all know, and another one that we have grown accustomed and comfortable with a surface understanding of it that makes us feel better. Turn to 15. Um, 15.11. There's no real conversation that launches into this like we had with the parable of the Good Samaritan where the lawyer asks questions, Jesus just sort of jumps into it. Uh, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he tied his property between the sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he spent everything, a severe famine took over the place throughout the country. He began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him to his fields, feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with pots of pigs. No one gave him anything. When he came to himself, which is another way of saying when he realized he was at the bottom of the barrel, right? He said, How many of my father's hands have bread enough and spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and get my father and say to my father, I sinned against heaven before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He is seeking a a, a reunion with his father, but not a full reunion. He is begging, he is hoping, praying that he can be a hired hand. He's not expecting his father to welcome welcome him back to the same status he had before. Um, Verse 20. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to him, put his arm around him, and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. This is the speech that he had practiced over and over again. He's finally getting it. The father pays no attention to the speech, verse 22. Quickly. I mean, he's not, he's not talking to his son right now. Right? It's like, so he, he tells his servants, bring out a robe, best one. Put it on his, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fat calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, and it's alive again. He's lost, and it's found, and they can celebrate. So the son is at this level um, before he asks for the inheritance. He leaves. He drops down to this level down here. He wants to come back to this level, and when he comes back, he's taken to this level. Now, those of you who are listening to me on podcast, I know I know but I was kind of talking about the fact that it is a total turn and expectations and not all what the son expected. I would say, rough guess, that 92% of the people think that is the parable of the prodigal son. Except for what? There's an older brother. But... We like this retelling of the parable son, of, of the prodigal son parable. Why? Happy ending. Happy ending. It's a Hallmark movie, mm-hmm. right? And what does it? How does it make us feel? Who, let me ask this question: Who do we who do we typically identify with when we read this parable? Who do we tend to identify with ourselves? The son. The son. And so the lesson behind this is what. You will be forgiven. You can do whatever. Or you, you maybe you've already done whatever. 
God's going to forgive you. God's going to welcome you back. Put the best robe on you. Get the ring. I mean, that's the love of God, which is 100% true. Twenty-five. Now his elder son. Oh, wait a minute. Forgot about him. Was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Huh? He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, "Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's gotten him back safe and sound." Isn't that great? Older brother. And then the older brother became angry, said a few words, <laughs> and refused to go in. Father gets word of this. His father came out to begin to plead in verse 29. The older son answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never once given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, son of yours, it's not, he's not, he's not even saying my brother. Right. This is, this is, this is like, like when I come home from work when the boys were little and my mom would say to me, what? Guess what your son did today? Yeah. Right? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> That's not good. When it's your son, right? Not our son. So it's that kind of thing. But when the son of yours came back to us, devoured your property of prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And then the father said to him, Son, you are always mine, and all that is mine is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because who? This brother of yours. I'm giving you the proper language here, older son. All right? This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost. Three characters younger son, the older son, and the father. The younger son violates. A major Jewish standard in squandering the inheritance. That, that again, the audience, in the same way that you know, uh, a, a man was walking down the road from Jerusalem, Jericho. Oh, that's a Jew. Uh, a younger son, A, asks for his inheritance early. Okay, that's a poor move, right? And then B, he goes off and he squanders it. Okay, that's a travesty and and an abomination. That's probably too small. But that was, you, you did not squander your inheritance. Your inheritance was a gift. Um, and not only would Jesus' audience have understood that from a strictly Jewish historical perspective, but the audience that Luke was speaking to of people of privilege would have totally understood the same thing. Right? Um, Father welcomes Father home. This is not the end of his brother. brother. Uh, the presence of the older brother is key to understanding the parable. Why is the presence of the older brother key to accept God's justice whether we understand it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we like it or not. That God's grace extends to people that we don't think are always worthy of. And we're going to have to get over that. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what this is about. Right? It's kind of like when you think. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Yeah. God's God's grace is is ever reaching, and, and it is it is one thing when you identify yourself as a recipient of that grace. Yay, me. It's a whole other thing when you think about all the people who you just brass tacks don't think are deserving of God's grace or love, and don't care for them all that much, and they are going to get the party. All right. Because honestly. Their transformation is, is notable. Uh, the older brother is kind of on the straight and narrow. And that's what the father says. You've always been here. Everything I have is yours. You've done everything I've asked. Every day's a party, more or less, right? I'm having to emphasize this to your brother because he's lost. And he's back with us. Um, yeah, the Yeah, I mean, I think that's in Luke 2, if I remember correctly, 
It's the same basic concept. It is that theme we find throughout the Gospel. Jesus' affinity for the oppressed and for the people who are most in need of God's grace. That is Stories like this and stories like that are concrete examples of how that rubs people of privilege and people who have lived on the straight and narrow in the wrong way. And, and that's the beauty, because it's one thing to say Jesus has a special affinity for the oppressed. Well, yeah, Jesus, that sounds great. I do too, right? But when it is, it feels at the expense of yourself kind of thing, that's when you're like, wait a minute. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a, I mean, that, that's a key thing that's happening here, which is why the parable of the prodigal son, to me, is a misnomer. And a lot of people say this. I hear a lot of people say that the really name ought to be the parable of the loving father. I would take it a step further. I, would, I think it ought to be tied the parable of the pissed off older brother. Because I really think that when Jesus told this, the person he wanted us to identify with was the older brother. He's speaking to people of privilege who have been already granted grace and love about how they understand and react to those who have been given a tremendous gift. So you see what I'm saying? In the same way that I think Jesus wants us to identify not with the helper, not with the Samaritan in the Good Samaritan parable, but the one who got beat up. How, how does it make us feel when our rival, our hated enemy, is actually helping us? Right? Here, how does it feel when someone who you know has messed up gets forgiven? So, um, the question, of course, is did the elder son come to party? We don't know. Um, the father's making the case. His brother has been dead. He's lost and found. Come to the party. And then Jesus goes right into another parable. <laughs> um, I think Jesus did not answer that because I think he wanted that question to linger. Would you go to the party? And I think he wanted that only. Would you go to the party? The, the ending of the parable is dependent on you. So, sign that. Parable to be sort of the forgiving father, but also I think uh, the pissed off older brother is really one that I kind of prefer myself. Um, the passion, again, we get to the end. Coming up on the top of the hour. Um, what is really, really key in this last week of Jesus' life, according to Luke, this is super important, is that Jesus never does anything criminally wrong, does not break any Roman laws. That is super important. Because what we're going to find in Luke, and we'll particularly find in Acts, the writer of Luke is speaking to these people of privilege, he's speaking to a Gentile audience, and what he basically is saying is, one thing about Jesus, he loves oppressed people, he's here for them, we really ought to be here for too, we got to challenge us. But you've probably heard some stories about how Jesus sort of rocked the boat a little bit. I, I want you to know he did not break any laws. You can be a good follower of Jesus and be a good Roman citizen at the same time. Or in their case, a good citizen, a, a Greek citizen. You, you can follow Jesus and be a good citizen together. Because there was this undercurrent that if you were going to be a follower of Jesus, you were anti Right, anti-rule. You were you were a traitor, more or less, which you can die for. Wanted to thread that needle. Okay, so throughout Passion, we find Luke's Jesus does not break any laws. Um, we find that he prays for the executioners uh, in Luke, and um, rather than in Mark, where Jesus's death was sort of a sacrifice. For human sin. Luke focuses on it being more of an example of compassion and forgiveness. So slightly different purpose. Right? More of an example. We get the Rhodomaeus story in Luke. And this is this uh, story where after Jesus has died, um, this is sort of in, in the resurrection kind of uh, arena. Um, two guys are walking along Jesus happens upon them, and they are actually followers of Jesus, like second or third tier disciples or whatever. Jesus happens upon them, but they don't recognize him for whatever reason. 
uh, they're talking about Jesus' death and resurrection and suffering, what they heard. Jesus says, oh, what are you talking about? He said, well, there was this guy, Jesus. And they go into this whole thing about Jesus. They're talking to Jesus about Jesus. So there's a little bit of comedic relief there or whatever. Um, and then, and, and Jesus says, oh, that's kind of interesting. They still don't recognize Jesus. Uh, they invite Jesus over to their house because to have a meal because that's what you do in Luke, right? And they get around the table and Jesus, interestingly enough, kind of takes over the meal uh, and breaks bread. And boom, in that moment is when the two men say, oh my God, Jesus. So we get, we don't know why they didn't recognize him at first, but again, symbolically, Jesus is recognized breaking of the bread at the meal table and the breaking of the bread. So what does that say to the early church and certainly to us and just having celebrated communion yesterday, right? Jesus is recognized when the bread gets broken. Um, and undergirding the fact that when we sit around the table and have a meal, whether it's our communion or honestly just the fellowship of believers gathered around the table for anything for a meal, that Jesus is right there with us, breaking bread. So that was told, I think, as a way to really emphasize the importance of that um, sort of thing. Uh, summary of Luke, God's compassion and forgiveness for all, written for a Gentile audience rather than a Jewish audience. Overarching concern for the poor and the outcast, fellowship of believers, and um, we will see, we'll talk about John next week, and then the following week, I think, we we'll talk about Acts. I probably should have put the first two together, but anyway, uh, we'll see that they, there's a bridge. Okay. It's kind of crazy going through an entire gospel in an hour, but any, any questions at all? All right. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Have a great rest of the day, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Dive into the Gospel of John.